those dinner table conversations uh, that you sometimes have with children, the ones you don't expect, the ones that kind of land. And you're forced to deal with So I'm eating dinner with my kids. Andrea got a phone call, so she, how convenient. <laughs> she went up to answer the phone call. It was a friend from a long way away, so she was gone for an extended period of time. And my oldest son, uh, in trying to be humorous, shares with me a song he learned at school. Not in music class. <laughs> and so he's, he's excited. He's, Dad, here, listen to this song. He's going to entertain the whole table. And so he enters into this song, and the third word is foul. It's just a dirty word. Like, poof, right at the dinner table. It's, ha-ha! And he just keeps going. He doesn't know what he said. He's, just, he's singing this song, and it's this dirty language just coming out. Ah, yes. So it became a 20 minutes or 15 or 20 minute conversation at that point about language, about curse words, you know, so I stopped the song and we talked about it. I didn't crush him, you know, because it was clear he didn't understand the words, so we took the word and we talked about the word. And it was a good conversation. It was a chance to diffuse the magic quality of foul language. You know, sometimes these words, particularly with children, they think they're like these verbal hand grenades that have power in themselves. And it was a chance to just say the word, just the word, and to talk about what's the power of words is what's behind them. The power of words is what God hears. But in this whole conversation, and it was good, about, you know, pretty soon they're like, so is there an A word? Is there a B word? Went through the whole alphabet. <laughs> and I finally realized this is no longer healthy. I was like, by the time we got to G, I saw F coming or whatever, and I was like, we're done. <laughs> We're done. But we did get a chance just to talk about words and, and how, the, how hurtful they can be. But this observation I've made, and this observation I'm certain has to do with the fact that this very message has been on my mind for some time, probably a number of months, but I'm sitting there and I realized all of the words, the A word, B word, C word, all the way to Z, they almost all have something in common except for the few that deal with the name of God in vain, or hell, almost every other one deals with something directly or indirectly related to our sexuality. And I, it, it hit me. You know, because we're going through the, the A, B, C, we're going through the alphabet of curse language, and I realized all of these words are above the knee and below the waist or dealing with uh, the way, the act of, that occurs between a man and a woman. And it was this moment of lament I had with myself at dinner, just to see how this God-given thing had been so broken and dirtied, and we can't even talk about it anymore, hardly. Like me mentioning at church, me talking about sex at church is like a foul language coming out over dinner table. It seems awkward. God made sex. He made man. He made woman. He brought them together. He gave them this gift of sex to express their relationship. And yet to talk about it on a baptism Sunday feels weird. That is weird. That is a confession, a communal confession to the Lord that we have sold sex to the world and they've taken it. They've stolen it from us. They've dirtied it up. They've demeaned it. They've just grounded down. And so now we don't even have a, a, a capacity to talk about it. 
without these images coming into our minds, without having to filter through. And so this morning I'm going to be careful, but I want to steal sex back. I want to connect it to the union that we have right here in front of us. Because that's what it was intended to do. Amen? There are two lies I want to deal with from the world. I want to deal with two lies this morning. I want to try to steal sexuality back for the church by kind of wrestling with these two lies. And and here's the first one. The first lie is this. The world seeks to diminish the relational significance of sex. That's probably their best lie. They seek to diminish the relational significance of sex. The hookup culture. The idea of casual sex. The idea that in some relationships, you want to start with sex. To make sure that this person is compatible. Make sure it all works out. Because if you're going to be with this person for a while, you want to make sure that they're good at that. Pornography. The entire concept of pornography renders relationship irrelevant. That's the lie of this world. The lie of this world is is that your sexual personhood and and the idea of sex is not integrally incorporated within relationship. I think that's the first lie, and I'd like us to address it. If you open in your Bibles to Genesis 2, okay, Genesis 2, verse 24. Now, we've been in Genesis this whole sermon series. We've been in Genesis 2. So this should be very familiar, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that you have some comfort with it by this point. This is the foundation of, of relational sexuality. Chapter 2, verse 24. Speaking of marriage, it's written... For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, this this teaching from Scripture, Pastor Terry remarked at how unique it is, this kind of the way it actually is a commentary on the narrative. I, uh, I did some reading. I can't find an occasion where the author of Scripture actually steps back out of the story and does that, I got all the way through Genesis and I still hadn't found one. I think it's absolutely singular that the narrator stops the story and says, this is what's happening here. For this reason, a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one. What does this mean, the two becoming one? Well, I think at the very least, it means these things. And I think we'd all... We'd, Pretty much all agree this. It means a certain kind of wholeness. I would say it this way. It is a shalom of relationship. It's not good that man is alone. We've talked about that. It is not good. So God, by bringing man and woman together, he's creating a wholeness of relationship. Certainly that's in the idea of the two becoming one. Also in this idea of the two becoming one is the idea of reproduction. A man and a woman unite in sex. They conceive one child who shares their substance. That is kind of a reproductive picture of the two becoming one. So certainly that's part of this idea of two becoming one is that that of reproduction. And then I would say at the very least this idea of intimacy. 
of this just shared lives, this closeness of the two individuals. If you see, you know, two people on the street that don't realize they're in public, you know, it'll be like, you'll say, well, they're like connected at the hip. You know, there's this, that's us saying, it looks like the two have become one. We just don't know we're saying that. But that's kind of what we're saying is it's, they're so intimate, they've like merged So there's this wholeness, there's reproduction, there's intimacy. All three of those things are found in sex. That's actually possessed within sex. You cannot reproduce unless you have sex. God has made it a requirement for the human race. Isn't that awesome? It's awesome. Not only that, it doesn't work every time. You have to try a lot. (laughs) Praise God. That's his design. All of this occurs within sex. This is captured within godly sex, this intimacy, this reproductive spirit, this new life desire. All of these things are here. Sex is not unrelational. Sex is the highest form of expressing relationship among the highest form of relationship among God's highest form of creatures. Did you hear that? Sex is the highest form of of expression of your relationship among the highest form of relationship, marriage. There's no, there's no relationship on earth that's as tight and as high and as intense between two people as marriage. And sex crowns that as we crown creation. That's what sex is. I'm not saying it's the funnest. I'm saying it's the highest. I want to give you an image. This image has been helpful to me. I've been thinking about sexuality as the top of a high tower or, um, you know, in a skyscraper, they're typically these rectangles until they get to the top and then they get decorative. That's sex. And the tower is your relationship. So our, the, the way we engage in sex as husbands and wives are in relationship, it's the, it is the expression, it's, it sits on the top of the whole relationship. It's an expression of everything that's beneath it. If you have a crummy relationship, how can you expect to have a fabulous sex life? It's not going to happen. It may be fun for a time, but it will not sustain itself. That the, the, the relationship that we build as husband and wife, as we're constructing this tower called marriage, the more that's invested in it, the more attention given to it, the better materials and time that are, that are used and thoughtfulness and planning that goes into it, the more beautiful the top of the tower. The higher it stands, the more glorious it is. And this is worth understanding because the world tries to take the tower... <coughs> and separate it from the idea of relationship. So they'll say, make it your starting point. Make such your starting point. What they're saying is, turn this skyscraper on its head and let it balance on this little point. That's what they're saying. Relationship? Build your relationship upon sex. God says, no. Sex is an expression of your relationship. Here's another way that the world messes it up. The world, and this is typically men, we don't want to build a high tower. We don't want to invest the energy to get all the way up to the 107th floor. 
we would just as soon have sex at the ground level. The world says that. The world says you can just enter into a sexual relationship right at the ground level. And the result is, is that we have a bunch of relational buildings that are one story high. You just look out. And it's like one of those depressed cities where there's nothing more than two stories high. Because we enter into a sexual relationship so quickly that there's no, there's no encouragement to build. Young ladies, I will say this. If your significant other is pushing you for sex... I just want to tell you this. His motivation to build that tall building will decrease dramatically the second he gets to sex. To him, it's the top of the building. For you, it's the third floor. To him, it's the top floor. So be thoughtful about what you give because your building will reflect it. But sex is designed to be the crowning glory of this Chrysler building. I think one of the ways that this reflects, particularly the way that men get this wrong, is we want sex a lot, but we don't want to build much of a building. So we're focused on getting the pleasure from sex or the fun from sex. We want the top of the Chrysler building to sit on top of a clay hut. That's what we want. We want this awesome sex life We want all this expectation of what our wife might bring to the bedroom, but we're not willing to invest the energy into the structure that warrants it. And you're not going to get something that is not supported by the relationship. I want to give you an example of this. Open your Bibles to Romans 1. That's page 781 if you're using one of the shared Bibles. Now, before we read there, I want to talk particularly about married sexuality, which is, so we have these tall towers. We're committed to a life of making it work. We're trying to work things out. But we don't understand why, there's, why our sex life isn't so great. And I'm here to say that rarely does the problem in the bedroom start or end in the bedroom. Usually the problem you have in the bedroom has something to do with a problem that started in the kitchen or at dinner or while you're watching The Office. That's where it starts. We oftentimes get into the bedroom and go, why isn't it all that it was supposed to be? And the fix is somewhere else. And it's like when you're building this building, if you have, if you have damage or errors in the construction way down low, the closer you get to the foundation of the building, if you've got that wrong, the building will lean. And if you've ever been in a leaning building or the top of a tall tree, you feel the lean most keenly at the top. So we get what seems like a little issue way down here. By the time you get to sex, something's wrong. Why don't I feel close to this person? Why doesn't she want to do this with me? Why, why do I have to ask this all the time? Why is this? Why is that? How come of this? It's because way down on the first floor, you've got something wrong. And your whole building is leaning. So you, it's uncomfortable up there. If you're going to fix these things, you need to enter into your relationship with yourselves and with God and say, what's wrong Down here, at the most basic level, the lower you go, the more foundational you get, the more extreme the the, the errors are in our sixth life. And I think this is seen in Romans 1. This is our little exercise. If you will, I want you to put your hand over 24 and below. Just put your hand over it. Fight the temptation to read it. This will be fun. Promise? I'm going to read 18 through 23. This is what's written. 
The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men, birds, animals, and reptiles. What is, what is Paul writing there? Paul is saying that God has tried to enter into relationship with mankind. Can we point the finger at God and say, you have not made your, revealed yourself to me? He says, no. God's invisible qualities have been made manifest to us in life. We intuitively know that things ought to be just. We intuitively identify cruelty. We intuitively identify when emotional harm is done to us. These attributes of the Lord have been made manifest to you, but God says, despite, that he, despite the fact that he has revealed himself to us, Mankind has severed or separated themselves from God. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying God was willing to have relationship. Mankind was unwilling to have relationship. This is a dysfunctional relationship. Now verse 24 says this. Now just listen to this. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now that to me, that's bizarre. So in this big cosmos where God's trying to have relationship with his people and his people deny his lordship, his people reject his relationship, and his people say they don't want to have anything to do with him, God's response is what? Does he smite them? Does he shoot them with lightning bolts? Does he send locusts? Does he turn their water to blood? Does he do any of those things? There's a million things he could have done, and this is what he does. He hands them over to sexual immorality. That's his response. Why is that? I think it's because the shattered relationship with God means that sexual brokenness will ensue. That our sexual brokenness is the result of dysfunctional relationships with God and with man. Sex is relational. If we can't have healthy relationships, we cannot have healthy sex. God is handing them over saying, if you cannot foster any meaningful relationship with me, if you can't understand the created order, these kinds of things, this very, those very sinful attitudes will manifest themselves in dysfunctional and broken sexual lives. That's all to say that sex is not unrelational. It's highly relational. It is the most relational expression of God's most relational relationship among God's most relational creatures. So I want to give you a few teachings, just a few. And this can go to everybody, but I kind of did a husband-wife thing. Husbands, sex is intended to be the best realized as an expression of your marital relationship. It is not primarily to make you feel good. 
That is not its goal. It's to express relationship. And it is not something that is designed independent from everything else. Meaning you cannot expect to have a great sex life if you will not invest in your relationship. Work at your relationships. Work at your marriages. That is where meaningful, deep, lasting sexual satisfaction comes from. I know it's work. I know it's work. But it's more meaningful. Wives, work to make the top floor of this building something worth building for. Expecting your husbands to invest deeply in a relationship while you marginalize the value of sex is sinful. You marginalize your husband's investment into the relationship when you do the chuckle chuckle all oh, that's all he ever wants to do. If that's all he ever wants to do, well maybe that's his problem, but that's the most meaningful reflection of relationship. This is the irony of fallen man and woman. The goal, if you said to Adam and Eve, if God said to Adam and Eve, your goal is to express the highest form of relationship between one another, and that is sex, they'd be like, right on. Right? And his approach to it would be perfect, and her approach to it would be perfect, and they'd do it a lot. They would always be highly expressing themselves. Right? That's why we're all here. They did good work. But somehow in the way it gets twisted, and especially the way it gets twisted once it gets into the church, we get this feeling like sex is something that, uh, you know, men feel like I just wanted to have feel good, I don't want to invest my, my time into the relationship, and women over here are like, that's all that everyone wants to do. Both are sinful. Both are broken. And both push each other into areas of deeper sexual brokenness. It's easy for us to say that addictions and pornography are sinful. I mean, they they look sinful. They're ugly. There are subtle ways of being broken sexually. I'd say seek to adore your husband and it will go well with you. Contrary to the first lie of the world, sex is the highest expression of relationship the highest order relationship of God's created work. That's the first lie. Here's the second. The second perversion of the world is after they've minimized its relational significance, they now heighten the individual significance of sex. It's not that important that you have a deep relationship with sex. They'll say that on one hand. But on the other hand, they say, you're not a man unless you... (laughs) Right? I mean, I've been in enough locker rooms to know what a man is. It's notches on a bedpost, it's pictures on a wall, it's stories from Saturday night. I know these things. You're not a man if. You're not a woman if you don't express your femininity in a provocative and alluring way. That is such a lie. That is on every magazine cover of the grocery store. That's how a woman justifies herself, is her sexual magnetism. It, they just, the world heightens to the premium of sex to the individual. And we need to hear, we need to hear the truth here that sex is just a small part of who we are. It's a small part. It's not 50%. It's a small part. The world is blowing it out of proportion and we need to put this tiger back in the cage. 
We need to say, we need to simply disagree with the world. Say the world is wrong. It is not this big. The second we think it's big, then we, then we shape the whole world around it to make it work out the way we want to. If we can just acknowledge, you know what, the Bible doesn't even talk that much about it. I'm not saying it's irrelevant. I'm saying it's part of life. It's a part of life. Men, you need to understand that you are so much more than your bedroom story or how good you are in sex. And women, you need to understand that you're so much more than than the way that you can dress yourself up or reveal yourself or the way that you can capture a man's eye or embrace the popularity or the, or the, the warm feeling of being appreciated sexually. You are so much more than that. And singles, this overblown desire for sex is such a sinful curse. It's a felt need. It is not a real need. And it has been cultivated by the world around you. Read with me, if you would, 1 Corinthians 6. This is page 803 in the Bibles. This will be our last scripture for the morning. Now, Paul's writing. He's eventually going to get to sexual issues of sexual purity. 1 Corinthians 6, I'll read 12 to 17. This is what he says. Paul writes, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. He says, Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but... For the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will also and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take a member of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Paul builds this argument. He, he, he's on his way to sexual purity, but he says this statement, this like common proverb, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Which, as you might imagine, the meaning of that is, is that the purpose of food is for the stomach, and the perfect of the stomach is to digest food. That's what they were made for. You see food, you eat it. Food for the stomach, the stomach for food. Paul says... God destroys both of those. And then he makes, he makes the same kind of sexual uh, illusion here. He's saying, likewise, to say sex for the body and the body for sex ignores the fact that God has made you. It's, oper- it's your life operating at an animal level. You're forfeiting the fact that you bear the image of God when you start to say, sex for the body, body for sex. I want it, I must have it. I feel like it, I'll do it. That defines me. And what Paul says is no. No, that is not it. He says, you were made for God. Do you see what he says there? He says right here in verse uh, 14, or verse 13, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Your purpose, your identity has nothing to do with how good you are in the bedroom. It has everything to do with how behoven and allied you are with the will of God. 
And we need, to, we need to not just to hear that, we need to own that for ourselves. The Lord is saying, I have chosen you for me. I have created you for me. And when we, when we live a life where we, wanna, we think that we're not complete unless we're sexually active here, or, or we need to be a certain way here or there, we're forfeiting God's purpose for our lives. God says, no, I have made you for my, my own. And that goes against this, you know, the ultimate quest for the perfect sex life. I think that is such a sinful perspective. Your ultimate quest is to be one with God. Which is, by the way, the very expression that sex is trying to show. Is oneness in relationship. Do you see that? This is what we've done wrong. We think that marriage is significant in and of itself. We think that sexuality is significant in and of itself. Marriage and sex are physical, earthly reflections of a more significant, truer, spiritual reality. So God gives man and woman for each other so that they can have a deeper understanding of what relationship with God, what triune love is, all of these things. Husbands and wives grow together as they grow towards Christ. And in doing that, we feel the triune relationship. God is the Father, the husband is Christ, the wife is the church, which is fueled and empowered by the Spirit. There's your trinity. Marriage is an image for us, so that when we get to heaven, we, it's not completely new, or it's God's gift to us saying, I'm going to allow you to try to understand it now, now dimly, what you will understand one day fully. And sex is precisely the same thing. Sex is God's gift to us, so that we can understand what the most intimate, whole, peaceful, joyous, pleasure-feeling, new life-giving expression of relationship is with God. When we sit at the communion table and we read the words from Jesus Christ, when he says, this is my body which is for you, what is he expressing? He is expressing the intimacy the sexual intimacy in a spiritual way. This is my body, which is for you. When Jesus Christ says of his Father, I and the Father, and the Father are one, he's saying, I experience with the Father the intimate relationship that this earthly, fleshly symbol shows dimly. That's why Christ has no need for a wife. That's why Christ has no need for a sexual life. Why does he need the, the, the dim signs that point at the thing that he's already enjoying. God is one with the Father. Why does he need to prefigure that in any way? Your bodies have been made for the work of the Lord. They've been called to purpose with God. We're called to be in union with Christ. So in baptism, Every time we lower someone down, we say they have been buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him in new life. What kind of union is that? We need to put the tiger back in the cage. We need to recognize that sex is just a small part of who we are and that it points us to a life, a life's desire to build a tall tower with God where union and intimacy and oneness are at the top. That's the purpose of sex. I'm going to close this in prayer. I know there are some of you here who 
are living or have lived sexually broken lives. I am one of you, and so the grace of God be upon you. I boast of Jesus Christ. And I would say this, that if you cannot embrace the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in trying to live forward, you're messing up at the ground floor. You need to understand that there is no place you have been that Christ has not gone. There is grace for us all. Amen. Please pray with me.